those of you who were here last week, um, we <coughs> looked at the Song of Songs, and I had brought with me my commentary where there is a literal translation from the Hebrew, which we refrained from reading for various reasons. But we, we, we started out in looking at the Song of Songs as the book that is read um, on the festival day of Passover for the Jewish people. So today you will find Jewish believers who are celebrating Passover will read the Song of Songs in all its detail when they celebrate the fact that God passed over and, and, and they were redeemed from Egypt. This morning I'm looking at Ruth. Now, Ruth is read at the uh, festival of Shavuot, which we'll come to in a minute. But in its entirety, this book is read uh, once a year by the community of the faithful in terms of the Jewish tradition. And they read it because of there's various factors, which I'll come to in a moment. But the portion that I want to read to you is perhaps not the portion that most of you will um, it will, let's say, it won't spring to mind. It's the last four verses. And this is how it goes. Now, these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron. And to Hezron was born Ram. And to Ram, Aminadab. And to Aminadab was born Nahashon. And to Nahashon, Salmon. And to Salmon was born Boaz. And to Boaz, Obed. And to Obed was born Jesse. And to Jesse, David. Hands up. No, you don't have to. But how many of you, when you get to the passages where there's the genealogies, you just go, and then you carry on? But have you ever stopped to think of who Ram is? No, neither have I. Every single week, we make our way to this place. Okay, some people are online on Zoom, but there is a sense that on a Sunday at this particular hour, as the body of Christ, as his family, as this local communal expression of his body, we get together and we, we do the same kind of things. We, we listen. We open ourselves to the presence of God. We come and we express our gratitude and thanksgiving and praise through our prayers. We sing. We offer our worship to God. We listen to the scriptures being read. We listen to those passages being expounded or uh, uh, opened up. We open ourselves to the spirit of God and we share with one another. We pray for one another. And then we go home. And there is a sense of order and um, a clarity, I suppose is the word, about what happens here on a Sunday morning. But when we move from here 
and we walk out of this building and get in our cars, we start off a journey into the week. And that week is going to be busy. It's going to be noisy. It's going to throw up things in our path that were unexpected, often unpleasant. It can be quite muddled. It can be chaotic. It can be boring. And it's not completely like that. There are glimpses in the week, obviously, where there are moments of light and joy. And there are real um, experiences of love and kindness and generosity. But in a sense, worship is this rhythm, this thing that divides the week up into weeks. And it's the place where the chaos of the week gets rolled back. And we come together to rehearse what actually happened as Israel went through the sea in the Exodus or as they went through the Jordan and the waters were held back and they took possession of, of the promised land. What we come Sunday by Sunday in a sense to do is to stop for a minute and remember that in Jesus, the waters have been held back and we are busy in a passage through to the promised land, the land of promise, all that he has for us as his people. And there is a sense of proportion and a sense of clarity as we take possession of the land, as Joshua said. But as we walk from this place, as we move into the week, and I, and I know that if I had to say to you, what, is, what happened last Sunday? What songs did we sing? Who prayed? What did I say about Song of Songs? And then, you, you know, people sort of start fidgeting and a glaze come over their eyes because we don't, we don't remember in detail. But we move out of this into the busyness of life and, and so much comes at us that what's happened here often gets swamped as the waters close in over us. What was announced here was clear enough, I thought that last week was quite clear and um, lucid. That God will save us, that he will bless us, that he will watch over us, that he'll heal us, that we are his people. It's the same thing that we rehearse and remember every single time that we're together. But so many of us, and I talk now not just in terms of, um, in, a, in a blanket sense, so there's not a point of finger at anybody because we all feel like this at some stage. We feel disqualified. We feel as if at the, a point during the week something happens where, and, and we sort of metaphorically shake our heads at ourselves and think, ah, blast again, where we've done something or we haven't done something or something's washed over us and we just allowed it to happen. And so we disqualify ourselves often from a sense of order and proportion. And whether it's about guilt or shame or accident or however it happens, we find loopholes to actually let ourselves off the hook. We're never going to be a player in God's economy. We're never going to uh, amount to anything because we look at the, the people of faith and we think, oh, my word. But this is what Ruth is about, is that the story of God's revelation is 
not only a comprehensive story, a narrative that spans the whole of history, but it's a detailed story. And it includes every single person. It includes everyone. This little book of Ruth, which is just four chapters, and you can read it quite rapidly if you want to. It doesn't take a huge amount of time to read through Ruth. Um, Goethe, the, the um, German philosopher, author, poet from the 18th and 19th century, reckoned that this was the, the best story in uh, the whole of the Old Testament. And as I've, over the years, learned more and more about Ruth, it is a, a literary gem. You can take Ruth and you can analyze it in a literary sense, and it is the most remarkable thing for terms of structure and language, and it's just, it's phenomenal, to be frank. But it is just a story. It is just a short story. It is just a, a, a picture of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz and, and what happened in their lives. It's the picture of, here it is, someone who was alien, someone who was an outsider, someone who was not worth any, anything in the, the structure of things being brought in under the umbrella of the loving kindness of God and his people. And the reason that this is read, Ruth is read in its entirety during the, what is known as the Festival of Weeks, the time when the law was given at Sinai. They, they celebrate. It's one of the three festivals where the Jewish men would move to Jerusalem to meet together in the temple. And they would celebrate the fact that God gave the law to Moses at Mount Sinai. And in Exodus 34, it talks about remembering his loving kindness is forever. And that's what they were about. And then 40 day, that was given 49 days after the Exodus. And so seven sevens are 49. So it's the, the festival of weeks or the harvest festival because that's when the summer grain crops were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate. So all of this is all mixed in together with the book of Ruth being read. The law being given, the 49 days, which is for us Pentecost, and then this little gem of a story that celebrates God's presence. Just a little bit of context because it helps us with how we understand it. In our Bibles, it's put in Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. It fits in neatly just behind that section in the Judges, chapter 19 to 21 in Judges, where there is just chaos. And so Judges ends off with this verse. Judges 21 verse 25 says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They were thoroughly postmodern. They were, if it feels good, do it. Um, you mustn't tell me what to do. I'll tell you what I'm going to do, kind of people. And that's what was going on in Israel. And along comes this. And Ruth begins with, now it came about in the days when the judges governed, or the judges were judging, 
that there was a famine in the land. It sets it right in the middle of a context where there is, there is this chaos. There is this sense of not everything is going well. And we need to read Ruth in the context of our own lives where we read it, understanding that it could be read any, any single day of the week. Because our lives are set in the middle of a world in chaos. Now, we might be able to insulate ourselves to a certain extent, depending on our economics and depending on our mental state of mind and so on. But you don't have to cast your net very far when you start thinking about the climate issues and the political turmoil. And you, the list goes on, and I'm not going to name all of the stuff because you all know it. We live in a world that is in upheaval, complete upheaval. That's the context of Ruth. And it's a, there's a famine. It is so severe that um, Elimelech takes his wife, Naomi, and their two boys, and they go to Moab, which is down the Rift Valley, up on the other side. It's from Bethlehem. You have to go southeast, past the Dead Sea, to the hill country of Moab a place that was off limits. But because of the topography and the geography, the weather there is different to what it is in Israel. And so there was clearly stuff there in terms of stuff to eat and so on. They go. What happens is Elimelech and both the boys who have now taken wives die. And Naomi and this issue of complaint, which we'll pick up next week, the whole thing of, of complaining, Naomi complains to God, what on earth have you done to me? And so she says, it's going to be better back home, and off she goes. That's the context. It's a world turned upside down. This is not a world that you mustn't read this smoothly and think it was going beautifully for Naomi or for Ruth, because Ruth, in her commitment, says, as we like to read in chapter 1, where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. We love that passage. But it's filled with a deep sense of dislocation. Because she's grown up her whole life as a Moabitess. And she's now willing to go as a single woman attached to an older woman to go and live in a land that she's never been before, where she will be foreign, she will be alien, she will be other, she will look different, sound different. She'll be a migrant. She'll be a refugee. <clears throat> it's, a, it's, it's a context that you must understand as being far from ideal. And what it suggests to me as we look at it, and this is the, the, the overarching thing, is that this suggests, as you read Ruth, how we should live between Sundays. We come here, and we are here perhaps an hour and a half in the week, being generous. How do we live for the other 166 and a half hours? How do we, how do we present ourselves in the way that we are through the rest of the week? Now, what's interesting in Ruth, there are no um, outstanding historical figures, no kings mentioned. There are no blistering prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel. 
Jeremiah. There are no charismatic judges. It's a plain story. It's a simple story. However beautifully it's crafted, it's just a simple story about two widows and a farmer. That's all. Whose lives are woven together in a fabric that presents itself into the history of God's salvation. And that's what's important. It's through the ordinary actions of these everyday people in their everyday lives that God's purposes are achieved. If you like, this is the heart of the whole thing, is that God's story, this massive story that starts in the beginning and before the beginning of creation and weaves its way all the way through and the coming of Jesus and his death and burial and resurrection into the huge consummation of the ages all being wrapped up together and all the brilliance of who God is and what he's done and what he achieves. Is that my story, little old me, who when I die in a few years' time, hopefully not too few, um, when, I, when I die, I will be remembered by a couple of people for a while. My kids will think of me and my grandkids. But in 20 or 50 years' time, you'll bat battle to find my name even on the internet. But my life is enormously significant because God inserts me into the story that he's written. And by understanding that the everyday ordinariness of who I am is grafted into God's purpose, his plan. It's God's story and my story are woven together in the fabric of salvation. That's what happened with Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. Ruth was the outsider who was integrated into the salvation history of you and I. Ruth is part of our family. And I said a few minutes ago, and I'll say it again, there have been three and a half thousand roughly years of biblical history. And when you start to read the stuff here and you think of um, Moses and Jeremiah and David and, I mean, the list is, goes on and on, Peter and Paul, these giants of faith, who am I? That's the question, really. Who am I in this grand scheme of things? And still today, we, we tend to make a big deal of the big names. But, uh, going back to last century, Billy Graham, but there's just as many now. I was deeply struck by a passage in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, where he's in heaven and he's being shown around. And in the allegory, there is this great triumphal procession and there's a person, a woman, who is, who is being celebrated 
as part of the focal point of this massive triumphal celebration. And Lewis asks, well, who is she? And I can't remember exactly now. I looked, at, I looked for it briefly, but I couldn't find exactly the passage. But essentially, he say, it's, it says, she's a housewife from York. And what Lewis is doing is he's saying, there is a different measuring stick. There is a different way of judging who is celebrated, who is important, who is, who is um, essential, if you like, in the story of God. And he's turning on its head this whole thing of our celebrity kind of culture, our culture in which we, we, we celebrate those who are massively successful or uh, powerful in various different ways. There's nothing wrong with that. But what we do is we neglect those who don't seem to be as great. And what Lewis is saying, what Ruth is saying, is that every single person has their place in this divine story. And their place is integral and is important and is significant and meaningful. The story is incomplete if Ruth doesn't become part of it. God loves me. God pours his love and his grace into my life. I'm significant. I, what I do has meaning and importance, not because of a position that I hold, or a job that I do, but because of who I am in the great scheme of things. One of the fascinating things as you read through this story is how, and this is integral to the whole thing, is how God is linked to the individual. All through, there's a connection between the way in which God works and the way in which we work and what we do and what the people in the story act out. Just to give you one example, but you can go and read for yourself. Boaz introduces Ruth to the God of Israel by saying this in chapter 2, verse 12. He says, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So he talks to her and he says, may the Lord Reward your work, your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. And he, he pronounces a blessing on Ruth. He says to her, I trust that the Lord will bless you, that you will find yourself protected and in his care. That's really what he's saying. And then we flip to the next chapter in chapter 3, three verse 9, and it says, um, they're in the threshing floor, and he says, who are you? Because it's dark, it's nighttime, and, he, and she answers, I am Ruth, your maid. And she says to him, she carries on to say, so spread your skirt over your maid, for you are a close relative, a, redeem, a redeemer, a goel in, in Hebrew. And the word for um, skirt and the word for wings is the identical word in Hebrew. And what the writer is saying, what he's, he's clearly showing, is that 
Boaz pronounces a blessing and he says, this is what God is going to do for you. This is how it is. And then Ruth comes into a set of circumstances and she says, you spread your skirt. You spread the wings. You're the one who's going to spread the wings over me. And he does. He does extend. He, he gives her a whole bunch of barley to take back to Naomi. And he marries her and redeems her life in that sense. He's the kinsman redeemer in the biblical language. And you can look at Naomi and you can look at Ruth, but there is this clear un understanding that the way in which God acts and how he provides and what he does amongst the people is one and the same thing as when Boaz does it or when Ruth does it or when Naomi does it. God provides in and through the way that we live in the ordinariness of our existence. So that when you're at work or when you're with your kids or wherever you are, you are the living expression of who Jesus is in that context. And without your life and my life, the story is not going to be written in its entirety. We often, you, you get people who write random things like, um, you will spend X number of hours in your life shaving, except if you like Tom and myself. Or those sort of things are menial. You don't want to be doing that because it seems to be, you know, it's just a waste of time. It just has to be done. The washing up and the washing, the mowing the lawn. Those things are, but it's how we live in those mundane, ordinary moments. It's who we are that is important. And so what you find in the book of Ruth is that things are constantly, there's, there's Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, there's Elimelech and the two boys, there's um, Orpah, the other um, um, the other wife, what is she? Widow, that's what I couldn't get. She's the other widow. And then you come to this passage right at the end, which is clearly added on to the, to the story. These are the generations of Perez, and then it names Perez, Hezron, Ram, Aminadab, Nahashon, Salmon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, and David. And what it clearly does is each one of those are integral to the, to the linking on. Naomi, I mean, Ruth and Boaz have a son. His name is Obed. Obed is David, King David's grandfather. And Jesse is Obed's son. And when Samuel comes to Bethlehem, that God has instructed him to go to Jesse's house to look for a boy to anoint as king. This is the story that it comes out of. Here, is, here it is. These are the named people that have held together the sense of purpose and history of life. The word that is used over and over in, um, in Ruth, in Hebrew, is chesed. It's, it's loving kindness. It's more than just kindness or love. It's this deep sense of mercy and grace and everything squashed into one word. 
It's that that has been poured out through Naomi and Boaz and Ruth into Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse, and Jesse is the one who brings up David to be the man that he is as the youngest son in a crowd of however many brothers. Ruth is important. If we don't have Ruth, we don't have David. If we don't have David, we don't have... And so you see what I'm saying is that there's no single individual who is insignificant. Every one of us has meaning. Every one of our lives is integral and imperative to the story that is woven in the tapestry of salvation. And that's why names are important. Because it could have just said, this, this story of Ruth could be just dropped in the middle of our Old Testament. It could be just sort of random and we think, oh, there's some nice passages in there that we, that we, we really like. But essentially what it's saying is that the whole thing holds together because of the people who are part of it. So I have no clue who Ram is. We don't know what color his hair was. We don't know whether he was a farmer or whether he was a carpenter. We don't know whether he was six foot six or five foot two. But his life is important. And then you fast forward a couple of generations, in fact, a number of generations. And when you read in Matthew chapter one, it's one of those passages, yes, that you get to when it comes time to do the Bible reading in your yearly uh, pilgrimage through the scriptures. And it starts, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Matthew is, is, a, is a Hebrew of Hebrews, and he's bedding the whole story of Jesus into the existing narrative, the story that has existed so far. And how does he do it? He spends the first 16 verses, the first 16 verses at the beginning of your New Testament are not erudite ideas and wonderful sayings of Jesus. They're a bunch of names. And it could be Nkiru or it could be Tom. It could be uh, uh, Jack or it could be Mark. It could be Gail. It, or it, it's all of our names are woven into this pattern. And so you find there the same thing that I read from Ruth right at the end of the book of Ruth is virtually word for word. It's encountered here in Matthew. And to Judah were born Perez and Zeref by Tamar. And to Perez was born Hezron. And Hezron, Ram. There comes Ram again. And Aminadab and Nahashon, and Salmon, and Boaz, by Rahab, was born Obed, and then to Obed, Jesse, to Jesse, David. It's, it's, it's inserted right there in the story of Jesus. And one day, one day, when I transition into a different body and a different form of existence, my name is going to be inserted in that story. 
my story is part of the story. And I don't care how grand anybody is. That is the most important thing in the whole of creation is that my story is grafted into the story of Jesus. And so your life in that period between Sundays where we move from things looking all ordered and neat and sitting in rows and paying attention to the 166 and a half hours during the rough and tumble and chaos and muddle of the week. Remember this. Read how Ruth and Naomi and Boaz behaved because they behaved like that in the midst of the same kind of stuff that you and I deal with. And their story, all of their story is important. All of my story and your story, your life and my life is important in terms of God's whole plan of salvation working itself out. Not just somebody, not just certain people, not just gifted people, you and me. And the reason I asked Derek to read from Genesis 28 was that I was gripped by the devotion in the Lectio 365, I think it was Wednesday morning. And this was the passage that was mentioned. And the headline was, Attention is the beginning of devotion. And that, I thought, was brilliant because it talks about Jacob going to a certain place. It's not a fancy place. It's just a random spot in the desert. And he picks a random chunk of stone to put his head on and to have a sleep. It's not going to be comfortable. But he becomes aware that God was there. And here's the, here's, here's the key. He becomes aware that God is there. So he has this dream. And Derek read it for us. I'm not going to um, rehash it. But he, he pays attention to the fact that God is there. And so it's no longer just a certain place. It becomes a place where God is. And he is aware of God's presence. And like Jesus says, as he goes, he says, I am coming and I will be with you even to the end of the age. I will be with you always to the end of the age. The certain place that you live, whether it's, whether it's in school or the Bank of England or at home, the certain place is pregnant with the presence of Jesus. And that's why our story matters, because every moment of every day, that certain place. And so Jacob moves away and he names the place, which I didn't get Derek to read because it's in the next verse. He, ri he rises up early the next morning and he takes the stone that he put under his head and he sets it up as a pillar. He's doing quite a big pillow. So he sets it up and he names the place Bethel, house of God. And he says, truly, I was unaware that this certain place, this random spot, this ordinary existence here, where I was just going to lie down in the dirt and put my head on the stone, God is here. 
And when we pay attention to the fact that God is there, that he is in every moment of every day, then certain places are not just dusty desert places with a stone pillar, hard places. They become the house of God. And my life takes on a, a whole different understanding of significance and meaning and, in a sense, joy. One of the things you notice is there's no miracles in Ruth because I think this is the key, that God is in the ordinary as much as he is in the spectacular. 